very impressive, and inviting me to come and speak is especially um, endearing to me. I'm going to ask you to do something hard this morning, hard for two reasons. First, I woke up with this thing in my throat. I don't always sound like this. I don't know what's going on. I, I don't feel sick. I just have this thing in my throat. So I may squeak a few times. I'm not sure. Uh, I hope you'll be forbearing with that. And secondly, it's hard because of the passage we're going to look at. And you say, no, that's an easy passage. Matthew 28, what could be easier than that? We've heard that passage 30 times. Actually, that's what makes it hard because you've all heard it a number of times. And so the difficulty will be to stay tuned in, consider what may be um, uh, information perhaps you haven't thought of before in that passage, and to see how perhaps God will use it in our hearts this morning. I'm gonna pray and then I wanna read that passage again, and then we'll jump in together. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the word of God which is our authority. It is all that we need for life and godliness. And you have graciously given it to us so that we may know you, so that we may understand who you are, what you are like, <coughs> and what you desire of us as we serve you. And so we pray that these minutes we have together will be profitable as we look at a very familiar passage. Help us to gain new insight as we here into your word. We ask today in Jesus' name, amen. Let's read that passage one more time, the last paragraph of Matthew, beginning in verse 16 of chapter 28. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. I'm reading, by the way, from the ESV. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I wanted to begin reading in verse 16 because most of us could even cite by memory verses 19 and 20. Verses 19 and 20 constitute a commission. Jesus is giving orders. He's giving instructions to his disciples. We often refer to this as the Great Commission because in some ways it is the clearest. It is uh, the, the, the most uh, momentous, perhaps, of the various accounts of Jesus commissioning his disciples near the end of, or at the end of his ministry. But the passage actually begins, the paragraph actually begins in verse 16. By the time you get to verse 16 in Matthew 28, the disciples had actually been with Jesus post-resurrection for some time. We know that Jesus stayed on earth after his resurrection for about 40 days. So sometime in those 40 days, he met with them on this hillside, on this mountainside. The text tells us some very specific information. It tells us, first of all, who was meeting with Jesus? It was the 11 disciples. 11, because by this point, Judas is dead. So there are 11 Jesus followers. 
and they're meeting in Galilee, Jesus had told his followers that he would meet them in Galilee. And so they have gone to Galilee, and they're on some mountain. We don't know which mountain. Maybe the Mount of Transfiguration. Maybe the Mount where he gave his sermon. Maybe it's another mountain. But the disciples knew Jesus had appointed or directed them to this place. So there's a meeting. This is not happenstance. This is not circumstance. They're meeting by Jesus' design. That's important for us to recognize because what comes next? Now, as I just mentioned, this represents some time after the resurrection. If we look back and we compare the various gospel accounts, we know that Jesus rose after his crucifixion on the first day of the week, on a Sunday morning, and he appeared first to some women who came to the tomb. Then he appeared to Peter. Then he appeared to some disciples that were walking on the road to Emmaus. And he sort of hid himself from them, and he revealed himself as he began to share the word, the prophecies of his uh, atonement, as well as when he broke bread and, um, and, and, and communed with them. After that, apparently, he appears, the, those two disciples ran back to Jerusalem. We've got to tell you what's just happened. Who, we've just seen Jesus. The women had seen Jesus. Peter has seen Jesus. Everyone is excited, probably a little confused. And then according to John, Jesus shows up. They're in an upper chamber. The doors are locked because they don't know if they're going to face the same fate as Jesus. They're reasonably afraid. And Jesus shows up. And he invites them to come and receive proof. He eats food in front of them. Why did he do that? Because they may have thought he's just a spirit. So I assume if a spirit ate food, it would just kind of fall on the floor. Uh, in Acts, it tells us that he drank with them. Same idea. The, the, the drink didn't go off on the floor. So he even said, if you want, you can come touch me. And he says, look, I, I have flesh and bones. I heard a really strange sermon one time about why he didn't say flesh and blood, because the risen Jesus has no blood. It was kind of a strange message. But I think Jesus is just being very practical. I can't feel my blood right now. I know it's there. If you cut me, it will come out. But I can feel my bones. I have to press a little harder than some of you because there's a lot of christening there. But they're in there. The bones are there. So Jesus says, come and feel me. If you're, if you're unsure, let me, let me prove to you. Well, a little while after that, uh, Jesus comes back. The first time, Thomas wasn't there. We, we think of him as doubting Thomas, right? Why? Well, because he said, I don't believe. I know what you're saying, but that's just too fantastic. He's dead. We saw him die. It's not possible. He was put into a grave. He was dead. And Jesus comes back. And he says, Thomas, I don't want you to be doubting. C come over here, Thomas. Put your fingers in, those, in these wounds. Put your, put your fingers into my side. And what does Thomas do? He falls down and he cries out, You are my Lord. You are my God. 
Well, all that happened in Jerusalem. But this passage, Matthew 28, verse 16, isn't in Jerusalem. It's in Galilee. How many of you, how many of you have heard, these are the last words of Jesus? Nobody? Seems like so many people have heard that. I'm, I don't mean to pop your bubble, ruin your day, but they can't be the last words of Jesus. Why? Because when Jesus ascends to heaven, he's back in Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives. And he gives his commission there in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And so those are the last words of Jesus before ascending to the, back to heaven. So this is somewhere in between. The disciples have seen Jesus multiple times. The disciples have had incontrovertible proof that Jesus is alive from the dead. And now, by Jesus' design, they're meeting him on the mountain. So let's continue looking at that. Verse 17. When they saw him, when they saw Jesus, when who saw Jesus? The 11 disciples. That's important. The text is specific. It's not 500 believers. It's not a mixed crowd. It's not a hodgepodge of Jesus' followers. It's the 11 disciples. When they saw him, they worshiped him. But not everybody. Some doubted. Now, you've probably read this passage dozens of times. And maybe as you've read this passage, you've assumed that what they're doubting is the resurrection. And I'm telling you, that doesn't make any sense. Because by this point, Jesus has proved several times that he's physically raised from the dead. There is absolutely no reason whatsoever that any of these 11 disciples would doubt the resurrection at this point. So what are they, what are they doubting? That question actually is the key to understanding the Great Commission. What are they doubting? Well, again, look at verse 17. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. What, what is the juxtaposition? What is the contrast? The contrast is not between worship and unbelief. Uh, I'm sorry, between belief and unbelief, between belief in the resurrection and unbelief in the resurrection. The contrast is between worship and doubt. All right, so think with me. What do we know about these 11 disciples? One was a tax collector. A couple were fishermen. Uh, some others came from different backgrounds. But all of them were Jewish. Now, you know this. You've read through the Old Testament, many of you. You've heard it preached from the Old Testament. How did, how did Jewish people worship? Some still worship this way today. What does it look like in the Old Testament to see Jewish worship? Well, it's actually very demonstrative. They could stand with their arms raised to heaven. You see that a number of times in the Old Testament. They could be on their knees. They could be on their faces. I think Thomas was on his face. I think Thomas is in the worship group because he already settled that. But the contrast with doubt is I think these Jewish men, they knew who Jesus was. 
They knew he was the Messiah. They knew he was raised from the dead. But now some of them are arms raised or on their knees or on their faces and they are worshiping Jesus as God. And I think some of them, they weren't quite ready to go there. It may be helpful, look back in uh, Matthew chapter 14. Jesus feeds 5,000 people. And then he, um, uh, after that, he, he uh, sends his disciples out across the Sea of Galilee. And then he comes walking across the Sea of Galilee to meet them. And uh, they're afraid. You'd be afraid too. It's a ghost. You don't normally see somebody walking on water in the middle of the night. And so they're crying out, and Jesus said, don't be afraid, it's me. And of course, Peter, Peter has a reputation for being a bit impetuous. But Peter said, Lord, if it's really you, let me come out there where you are. The Lord doesn't rebuke Peter at all for his desire to come out to him. I think Peter is just simple enough to say, you know what, things in the boat aren't going so well, but it's all good out there. Let me come out there. I want to be safe with you. I'll take a thousand people like that. I'll take one person like that. That's the kind of person that God can really use. Oh yeah, he gets it mixed up. He makes a lot of mistakes. But, but he, he wants to be where Jesus is. And so Jesus says, come on, Peter. And Peter, I don't think Peter's trying to show off. I, don't th I think he's just like, okay, Jesus. He jumps over the side of the boat, and he goes waltzing out to where Jesus is. And you know the story. He starts to see the waves, and he hears the wind howling, and suddenly realizes, you know, this doesn't really work. And down he goes. Jesus reaches out his hand, and what does he say? He says, uh, oh, you of little faith, where, where did, why did you doubt? I'm having trouble reading this, and I'm thinking, there we go. I, I was going to, I thought I'd get that tangled up in my earpiece. Okay, let me give you the verse. Uh, 28, Lord, if it's you, let me come. Jesus says, come. He sees the wind and the waves in verse 30. Verse 31, Jesus reaches out his hand, saves him, and says, okay, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? The word doubt that's used there is only used twice in the entire New Testament. There are other words for doubt in Greek. This doubt is very specific. It's very descriptive. It's very descriptive. It's used here, and it's used in Matthew 28, verse 17. This word, not in your New Testament, but in other first century Greek literature, is translated drunk. Have you ever seen a drunk person? They, 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 they're unstable. They, they, can't, they can't quite get their footing. Can you see Peter on the water? And Jesus says, Peter, why are you doubting? Why are you unstable? It's me, Peter. That's the word that going back to Matthew chapter 28 is used in verse 17. When they saw him, when some saw him, they worshiped him, and some were wavering. And I think very literally what's happening there 
is some of those Jewish men are kind of like this. You know, it's like, it's like somebody goes to the Pentecostal church for the first time and they're not quite sure, so they're like, you know. And finally they're like, oh yeah, you know. Well, maybe that's not what the disciples did. But I can kind of see them a little bit hesitant. Or maybe they're, they're kind of going down on their knees, but they're looking around, what are the other guys doing? They're, they're just not 100% sure about this, worshiping Jesus as if he's God. And Jesus, or, or Matthew describes that as doubting, as being unstable. And now you get into what we often think of as the commission passage. See, it is, it is in the context of doubt about the issue of worship that the whole commission passage takes place. If you, if you miss that, you can come up with lots of great ideas about the Great Commission. You can come up with strategies and ideas and, and, and nifty outlines, but you're missing the, the central point. The central point is, this is about worship. And so Jesus, in verse 18, comes to them, the doubters, and he says to them, all authority on heaven and, and, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, not only is it appropriate for you to worship me, you have no choice but to worship me. I am declaring myself as the absolute, uncontested king of the universe. And, and you owe me your worship. That's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is saying every, every speck of dust in the furthest corner of the universe, I'm there and I rule. I'm in charge. And so these disciples have, have their doubt taken away. They must worship Jesus. Why? Because he is not only the Son of God in the flesh, he is not only crucified for their sin, he is not only raised from the dead, he's the king of the universe. Have you ever stopped to think that right now, right now, this moment, right now, there's a man ruling the universe? Jesus, the God-man. And he will always be a man, just as he will always be God. And he is ruling everything. Are you with me? So what does Jesus say after that? Go. Why should you go? Because every single human being that has ever existed should worship me. Every single person in every single tribe speaking every single language in every single continent in every single country should be worshiping me. I deserve worship. That's what Jesus is saying. So in order for that to happen, you need to go make disciples. And you can't make disciples if you're not going. There's some interesting stuff that's going on with the Greek language there, and I could bore you with that, but I won't. Just make it simple and just say, look, you're not going to make disciples in the whole world if you're not going. So going is part of this. It may not be the core thing. It may not be 
the primary thing, but it's got to be part of it. And it doesn't necessarily have to be to Africa. I was thinking all of our folks on the stage today were Africa. It's Africa Day. Wonderful. It doesn't have to be Africa or, or some other country. It, it is a mistake to take the Great Commission to only mean missions. The Great Commission is for all of us. Make disciples. Why? Because you worship Jesus. What does it mean to worship? What does it mean to worship? Well, we could probably spend days or weeks going through definitions of worship. But here's what, I, here's what works for me. Worship is joyful surrender. I'm, I'm happy by what Jesus does for me. I didn't, I didn't raise my hand today because I don't know your church. But I get so excited when I sing these songs. Jesus did this for me. For me. And he absolutely deserves my worship. And so as I am joyfully surrendering to him, that, that puts within my soul a great desire for my neighbor to joyfully worship him, for my in-laws to joyfully worship him, for people that I might meet on a plane or at a store to joyfully worship him. He, he absolutely deserves their worship. And we know, according to Stephen was talking about Re uh, Revelation 7, <coughs> excuse me, a day is coming when people from all tribes, tongues, and nations will worship him. But Jesus is using us to bring his message as we joyfully worship him to share that with others so that they can joyfully worship him too. So that they can submit to the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And that means we've got to go. We make disciples. The disciples knew full well what it was to make disciples because they themselves were disciples. And they knew exactly how it worked. Jesus spent time with them. Jesus sacrificed for them. Jesus poured himself into them. Discipleship is just messy and time-consuming. It, it just takes time. But that's how it works. It's life on life. It's pouring yourself, rubbing your life off on somebody else's life. And you're growing together. So you're making disciples of all the peoples, all the nations. And in order for that to take place, you're baptizing them. So baptism, whatever else baptism is, it is, at the very least, a sign of discipleship. It is a declaration that I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I am one of the joyful worshipers. So in our churches in America, and I'm not here to criticize, far be it from me as a guest. I don't know your practice here, so I wouldn't do that anyway. Um, but so often, baptism becomes a rite of passage for us. I can take it to places in the world where it's anything but a rite of passage. I remember being in, East, uh, in West Africa, and the missionaries I was with said, look, Lars, we'd like you to talk to this guy uh, Mustafa was his name. He's a Muslim. He works, he's, he, he's got a stall over here in the marketplace. He makes shoes and fixes shoes. And we've known Mustafa for five years. And he says he understands, he says he even believes, but he won't 
he won't declare himself a follower of Jesus. So maybe you're smarter than us, which of course was not the case, but maybe you can say something we haven't said. So I said, I'd love to meet him. You know, don't, don't get your hopes too high, but I'd love to meet him. So we set a time. He didn't want to meet me in the marketplace because it's a very Muslim area. But we, we made an appointment, we met somewhere. And I went through the gospel as simply as I could, talking about how Jesus restores our honor with the creator. Jesus bore all of our shame, concepts that would make sense to a Muslim. And um, Mustafa's nodding his head. And he said, I believe all that you're saying. I said, then why don't you commit your heart to Jesus? And he said, then I would be baptized, right? And I said, absolutely. He said, no, I can't do that. He said, the day I get baptized, my dad will kill me. Mustafa's 40 years old. Can't do it. Didn't do it. As far as I know, Mustafa's never declared himself a believer. I was in uh, India one time. Same kind of a thing with, ish, with Hindus. If I, if I follow Jesus, if I embrace the cross, if I joyfully worship him, if I become his disciple and I'm baptized, I'll have to leave the village. I may be beaten to death. And it's a hard, hard choice. The fir very first time I was in, I've been in China a few times, the very first time I was in China, I met some college girls. They were in local university. And they had gone to a Bible study and they had heard the gospel and they said that they believed. And I asked them if they had been baptized. And they said, not yet, but we're, we're wrestling with that. I said, what, what are you wrestling with? They said, the day, this is some time ago, so I don't know if it's still quite this way, to be fair. But they said, the day we get baptized, they will take away our identity card. Well, that identity card is kind of like, in China, it's like, like a combination of social security and driver's license and everything else. And so no identity card, you're nothing. You can't get a job, you can't do anything. You can't continue in college, you, you become a non-entity. And they were wrestling with this. Is it worth it? I prayed with them. I saw them, I was there for eight weeks. Saw them at the end of the eight weeks. And they came up with big smiles. We've been baptized. They kicked us out of school, but we're so happy. Dreadful surrender. A disciple of Jesus. So baptism, teaching, ongoing, systematic, regular teaching about the things that Jesus taught his followers. Those parts we know. Those parts we've heard, those parts we get. But it's absolutely necessary. And Jesus rounds this out with a great promise. I'm going to be with you. This is not something you do on your own. I'm going to be with you literally the whole of every day. There's never going to be a time when I'm not with you. You know, think about it. I, I mean, in the, in, the, in the weeks after Jesus' resurrection... The disciples who had basically, for at least several years, spent almost all their time with Jesus. Not necessarily all of their time, but a lot of their time, day in, day out, with Jesus. 
But after the resurrection, he's kind of coming and going. And they've got to be wondering, you know, what's, what's the deal? In John 14, he had said that he would send his Holy Spirit, who would abide with them, and that the Spirit would be another one like himself. And Jesus said, I'm, I'm going away. I'm going back to the Father. They didn't like that. In, in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus actually ascends into heaven, the disciples are standing there just staring into heaven like, what just happened? And finally an angel comes and says, okay, it's time to go home. He'll come back, but it's not going to be right now. So I think these disciples... They were probably legitimately concerned. What happens next? Are you just going to abandon us? What's this going to look like in the future? And so Jesus assures them, I I'm never going to leave you. I'm, I'm never going to orphan you, abandon you. And as you go about throughout the world making disciples, teaching them, be assured, I'm there with you the whole of every day. But the essence of this passage, the core of this commission, is the issue of worship. Are you, day by day, not just here in church, but day by day in your own time with God at home, maybe at your work even, in your interaction with your family, are you worshiping God? Are you joyfully surrendering to Him? Once you joyfully surrender to Him, you know, you want to make disciples because you want other people to experience what you're experiencing in your joyful surrender of Jesus to Jesus. And if you're doing that, quite frankly, Jesus says, I want you to cross the room and talk to your coworker. Okay. I really want Joe to know this joy. And then I want you to cross the state and talk to your uncle or whatever, your relative. Okay. I really want my relative to know this joy. And then maybe for some of you, Jesus says, you know, I actually want you to go to Africa. And, and by that point, you're like, okay. You know, I mean, my biggest joy in life is to surrender everything to Jesus. So going is not the struggle. The struggle is the worship. You get that settled? The other things will follow. So, motivation from the mountainside. What's your motivation? We could, we could think of a lot of things, but at the end of the day, it is worship. Recognizing the glory of God in the person of Christ and being thrilled and joyful and surrendered. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful today for this congregation. We're thankful for the emphasis they have here on sending and supporting and holding the ropes. We're grateful, Father, for uh, the leadership of this church and for the relationship they have had for these many years with IBM Global. We ask that you will continue to bless, you'll continue to use them, We'll continue to send folks from this congregation. But more than anything, we just ask that you'll give us joy in our surrender, that we will truly worship Jesus 
as our King, as our Lord. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.